I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this complicated world of ours. I truly hope you and yours are safe and very sound. I'm Aaron David Miller, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a series of conversations on issues of critical importance uh, to America and to the world. Uh, today, I'm truly pleased to welcome back to the program, uh, General David Petraeus. Um, I'm going to spare the long introduction. Uh, uh, suffice to say that in addition to his storied military and government career and service that placed him at the center of uh, the nation's political, military, and intelligence policies during a very critical time in our history, he's also the author of a must-read new book, Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare, from 1945 to Ukraine. We're gonna talk a lot about the book today because it has direct relevance to um, the discussion at hand. I, I must say that for our narrow purposes and actually for general purposes, this volume could not have come at a more propitious time. To say that a book entitled Just Conflict, which is about simply elegant and violent uh, at the same time, it's probably the understatement of the century. Last year, 238,000 humans died in global conflicts, which was a massive increase of some 96% year over year, largely a result of two conflicts, uh, Ukraine and Ethiopia. In 2022, an estimated 82,000 humans were killed in Ukraine and 104,000 in e Ethiopia, making 2022 the deadliest year since the Rwandan genocide in 1994. Another data point of interest, the Sydney-based Institute for Economics and Peace found rising levels of conflict in 13 of the last 15 years, and the numbers of countries engaged in conflict outside of their borders has risen from 58 to 2008 to 91 in 2022. And conflicts these days, certainly Ukraine, we're going to talk about this, seem to be more enduring. The average length of a military conflict, uh, according to the University of Chicago and Uppsala University, since 1816 is 100 days. 100 days, the average length of a conflict since 1816. Uh, if a conflict lasts for more than a year, according to this study, it's likely to go um, into a multi- uh, a multi-year phase lasting as many as 10 years. So we want to deep deeply into conflict. Um, um, and General Petraeus, first of all, I should welcome you again to Carnegie Connects. But first, I want to I ask you a question that we posed uh, in this session. And that is, the U.S. now seemingly confronts a sort of arc of crisis uh, across Europe with Ukraine, Middle East, now Gaza, and perhaps an escalation along the Israeli-Lebanese border, um, and the looming ch challenge without too much imagination of a potential conflict with China in Asia over Taiwan. It's fashionable to talk about the U.S. as being overstretched. Um, do you see it that way? I think the number of challenges and the complexity of the challenges is greater than at any time since World War II. 
but I don't think that we're overstretched. Uh, first of all, let's just recognize we are not engaged in active conflict in any scale. What we are doing is helping the Ukrainians uh, to combat the primary threat to uh, Europe and, and NATO. Uh, we're helping Israel uh, to destroy an Islamist extremist organization that has shown itself to be akin to the Islamic State and therefore is irreconcilable and has to be destroyed, helping Israel to begin ideally to deter a, a bigger uh, activity by uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, by other act actors uh, that could enter the fray, various uh, Iraqi Shia militia that are indeed uh, launching drones and some rockets at our forces in Iraq and northeastern Syria, and we'll have to respond again very likely. But again, nothing that is of substantial scale. And meanwhile, we are, I think, still effectively uh, carrying out deterrence in the Indo-Pacific region, on the Korean Peninsula as well, uh, and in various other missions around the world. So to be sure, I think we are keeping more plates spinning uh, than at any time uh, in certainly in recent memory. We have allies and partners who help us with that if we continue to value those the alliances and those partnerships. But I don't think that we are overstretched. Uh, we do need to re reinvigorate some elements of our defense industrial base. We do need to accelerate the transformation of our forces from a small number of large platforms to a massive number of small unmanned systems, uh, while still retaining certainly a number of the legacy systems. We're seeing the value once again of aircraft carrier task forces in the greater Middle East right now, with one in the Eastern Med and one that will presumably position uh, outside, inside and outside the Gulf. Uh, but again, I think the United States is capable of handling all these different challenges. And I would just remind you that what we're doing in a variety of different places is advising, assisting, and enabling others who are the ones actually on the ground carrying out the actual conflicts. There's a quote here I'd like to read to you, uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Michelle Flournoy, and specifically on the issue of resourcing these conflicts. She says, and I quote, our industrial base was not prepared to have to restock so many different types of weapons for multiple purposes at the same time. And then she further asked, can we train equipment support three fronts with defense spending at the lowest level as a share of our, of our economy in more than two decades? Is specific weapon systems, uh, is there competition between Ukraine and what we're doing for the Israelis? For example, with artillery shells and the like? Yes, yep. in, in some cases, yes, yep. Uh, there's no question. I think in some cases there's an overlap between what we're trying to provide to Ukraine and to Israel. It's publicly known that we were actually shifting some 155 millimeter howitzer ammunition from stockpiles in Israel uh, to Ukraine. Uh, we did the same with some that were in on the Korean Peninsula. So clearly, as I mentioned, the industrial base does need to uh, dramatically increase its production of certain types of systems. But those are not necessarily the systems that are the underpinning of deterrence, say, in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, but yes, again, she's exactly right in that regard. I'd also, uh, I agree with her on the defense spending levels as well. Although I'd like to see some efficiencies in those defense spending levels if the military, industrial, and congressional complex would allow that also. You know, capacity also has to do with domestic resilience uh, beyond just the uh, complex issue of industrial uh, production, what, we, what we're actually making. What about political bandwidth? Um, 
it is intriguing to me, and I don't want to get into domestic politics if we can avoid it, that the perception of, of our support for Ukraine and Israel clearly uh, is different as a consequence of different po political parties. Is there a bandwidth problem, do you think, um, especially as we head into an election year? I don't think it's necessarily a bandwidth problem. Um, I think it's more, again, just a domestic political angle. Uh, and the truth is that both houses of Congress, there is a bipartisan majority uh, supporting additional funding and, and uh, munitions and so forth for Ukraine, just as there is uh, even more so certainly for Israel. Uh, but we're, we're going to have to work our way through that and obviously traces itself to the House of Representatives and the dynamics uh, in the, the majority party there. I think we'll get through that. There's a very strong bipartisan majority in the Senate. In fact, the minority leader, the Republican leader, is among the strongest supporters of Ukraine, uh, maybe in America, not just in Capitol Hill in Washington. Uh, again, I hope that we'll get through that. I'd like to see us package Israel, Ukraine, actually border uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency, which is also in need of some additional funding because of the extreme weather and uh, other events that we've experienced. Put it all together. We can afford it. We can do this. Uh, and let's get on with it. Uh, because again, the clock is ticking in all of these different locations. Yes, there's another five or six billion uh, in assistance that's authorized and appropriated still for Ukraine. Uh, but again, that will be expended here pretty soon. And we need to continue these programs uh, because at the end of the day, uh, Ukraine is fighting a war for NATO, really. Henry Kissinger himself, who was for years not a huge fan of NATO enlargement, as you'll recall, um, says that the security of NATO begins at the Ukrainian-Russian border, and that's the new reality that we have to embrace. Yeah, we're going to talk about Ukraine in a minute, but before we leave this notion of, I guess it really cuts to the core of what your view of the U.S. role in the world is and, sh or, and or should be. One of my former bosses, the late Madeleine Albright, coined a term, she actually borrowed it from uh, President Clinton, she talked about the United States as the indispensable power. And you know, I'm reminded of de Gaulle's famous quip that the cemeteries of France are filled with indispensable people. So I just wonder, is that the way you would describe uh, America's role in the world? Indispensable suggests that with which someone cannot do without. But does that pertain, is that a global, is that a global mandate for us? Yeah, I don't know whether you want to use that particular phrase, but I think it actually captures the reality, which is right. that we, more than any, again, if you think of the U.S. as the guy in the circus who's keeping a lot of different plates spinning, um, we are the leader in that particular effort, and there is no alternative to that. Yes, we do have allies and partners that help us keep all these plates spinning. You know, keep in mind that there's a plate that represents the U.S. Western relationship with China. It's the biggest plate in the entire tent, bigger than all the others, arguably. You can't let it wobble. There's still a Korea plate, got to deter North Korea. There are still plates for individual Islamist extremist organizations on which we have to keep an eye uh, and keep pressure. And we can do this generally now by advising, assisting, and enabling others uh, rather than doing it ourselves, although we do some of that as well. Uh, then there obviously now is the the Israel plate when it comes to the destruction of Hamas, but also uh, the deterrence of Hezbollah, uh, other actors that could cause problems, intercepting uh, missiles from uh, the Houthis in Yemen and so on. There are 
cyber threat plates of various types, nation state criminal actors, uh, states that are out to make money, states that are out to influence our politics or create, uh, put uh, gasoline on the burning embers of discord and disagreements and so on. So again, I think there's a, a number of threats that is greater than at any time uh, since the end of World War II, and the complexity of them is greater. And again, if the U.S. is not the leader in keeping all these plates spinning, noting again that we have allies and partners that help us if we we invest in those alliances and partnerships, and we are, um, then I don't think that anyone else will. And the best example of this was that all of our partners in Afghanistan wanted to remain there. We had 3,500 troops. Uh, we hadn't taken a, a loss in battle in 18 months. Uh, we chose to withdraw and everyone else had to withdraw as well, as did the 15,000 plus contractors who kept the very sophisticated U.S. helicopters and fixed wing aircraft that were the entire linchpin of the defense concept uh, for Afghanistan. And as their operational readiness uh, inevitably uh, drew down, degraded, uh, and they could no longer get the commandos, the 35,000 really well-trained and well-equipped uh, forces out to reinforce the elements that were securing the population centers and critical infrastructure. It became clear to those elements that no one was coming to the rescue, and the result was predictable, although not necessarily the hastened departure of the president uh, in that case. And it, quite an interesting con contrast between the strategic leadership in Afghanistan and that of President Zelensky. Uh, in Ukraine, who, you know, said, I don't want to ride, I want ammunition, we're going to stay in Kyiv, my family's going to stay in Kyiv, and men in Ukraine are going to remain in the country, and we're going to mobilize fully for war. But in any event, yes, I think, again, whether you want to use that term, because it's become um, seen as a little bit uh, of a lightning rod, or, or perhaps a bit polarizing, but I think the reality is that the U.S. does have a unique leadership role to play in the world. And we do that not because it's helpful for others. We do it because it is in our national interest to do so. Well, it does get to the issue, though. You know, the organizing principle of, a of any nation's foreign policy is to protect the homeland. Uh, I mean, that's priority number one. And yet it, it is fascinating to me, it always has been, that, you know, our geographic location is so fortuitous, it's unique in the annals of modern history. We're sandwiched between two non-predatory powers to our north and south and literally fish, you know, to our east and west. With one historian, wish it had been me, brilliantly described as our liquid assets. If our security is not directly threatened, and frankly, not since the late 18th century when we had the great powers in our backyard, or I, I would guess during the War of 1812, when the British uh, <clears throat> burned part of the capital, has our security been directly or fundamentally um, threatened? I guess you could argue, uh, obviously, uh, Roosevelt faced this problem. But if you can't present uh, a vision or uh, the mandate to the American public that we're involved in the world because it is critical for our security, then you're forced essentially to talk about fashioning an environment in which American interests and American prosperity, American interests, you can even say, I guess, international systems, stability and prosperity is in fact tied up with America's role. Is that a, 
Is that going to be, is that a harder or easier pitch to make these days? It's probably a bit more challenging, but I don't think it's impossible at all. I think you just need a, a good message and a good messenger. Uh, and you added the other piece of that. It's not just our security, it's our prosperity. Uh, and that prosperity is enabled by, again, people may challenge us as well a bit, uh, such as the indispensable nation, but the, you know, the rules-based international order that we and our allies and the victors of World War II helped establish in the wake of a 50-year period that had two horrific world wars and the Great Depression. And the intent of this system that was created was to try to prevent further world wars and to try to prevent further uh, economic collapse. And, you know, to varying degrees, I think that that rules-based international order has served uh, the world and, and certainly served the United States reasonably well uh, for all of its imperfections. Uh, you know, as Churchill used to say about democracy, it's the worst of all forms except for all the others. Uh, and so I think continuing that, uh, continuing to contribute to the world to sustain that particular uh, set of organizing institutions and principles and structures is in our national interest and in that of our allies and partners as well, which is why they do help us keep all these plates spinning to come back to that metaphorical image. Yeah, it is a harder sell these days in large part because you have numerous countries, in, in the, particularly in the global south, which uh, obviously isn't a, a monolithic concept in its own right. Um, not all the world sees it the way we do. No, not at all. No, in the, in the global south, I'm a member of the Trilateral Commission. It was held this year in uh, the global gathering was held in India which made a point of inviting a number of the countries of the global South for whom it, seem, it, it uh, sees itself as a bit of a, uh, a representative to a degree, giving voice to them. I thought it was a very good move. I thought it was very helpful, it was salutary for us to hear from uh, not just our traditional Western allies and partners. Uh, and you're exactly right. Uh, and so we even have to convince other countries uh, that this is generally good for the world. Uh, and that will be met with a degree of skepticism by some of them. But but again, you have to make that case. But here in the United States, uh, of course, then you do start to get very much into domestic politics. Uh, and that has its own challenges, especially in an era of, uh, of news channels that have particular orientations and then also social media that do the same. Yeah, I think it was George Will who quipped that when it comes to foreign policy, the American public wants, of little, wants as little of it as possible. And I suppose, unless it directly impinges, whether that's in the form of terrorism or, or uh, an oil embargo, uh, that rule of thumb probably is correct. And it's domestic priorities, essentially, I suppose, in this coming year that will determine much about the outcome of the 2024 elections. So let's turn, the book really is so, I mean, replete with so many good lessons. Let's talk about uh, the two crises uh, du jour. Although I have to, I have to comment. I, you know, I've now watched and been immersed in the in the media piece of the Gaza, the Israel Gaza war for the last month, and I have to say, it it it, it sort of, you know, drives home the no, the the message that in the media, nothing in America lasts more than fifteen minutes because Ukraine has essentially disappeared. From the, from the frame, from the media frame. And it's it's remarkable how you can go pivot from a conflict that is deemed to be the, you know, the West, the fulcrum of 
civilization to defend the West against Russia to an immersion in in uh, in Gaza. But let, let's turn to Gaza for a minute. Um, based on your experience in Iraq, what are the similarities? You, you, you lay out some of these in the book. What are the similarities between the problems the Israelis confront in Gaza right now and the problems of counterinsurgency and fighting uh, uh, insurgents and terrorists in Iraq, both in Fallujah and in Mosul? Well, as many other places than that. I mean, we had to clear many, many large, very substantial cities, none other than Mosul as large as Gaza City. Uh, although Gaza City, at least the number of uh, civilians has been reduced by certainly a half and maybe as many as three quarters. But there's still several hundred thousand, which is roughly what uh, we're in Ramadi, we're in Fallujah. And remember, we cleared Fallujah for the final time during the surge and got that right and sustained it that particular time. Uh, but also very substantial parts of, of Baghdad, parts of Sadr City, uh, Tikrit, uh, Bakuba, uh, Mosul, as you noted, and even the Battle of Basra when we defeated the uh, Shia militia that were supported by Iran in that very, the second largest city in Iraq. So all of these, uh, again, have elements that are present in the effort by uh, Israel to destroy Hamas and the Islamic Jihad, which I believe do need to be destroyed. I do see them again as uh, analogous to the Islamic State, albeit an imperfect analogy in that uh, the uh, Hamas has some degree of Palestinian nationalism wrapped up in it. But that said, again, does need to be destroyed. Um, it is analogous to uh, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, eventually the Islamic State. Um, and, and so therefore, They've got to go into the city and do this. And that's what faced us in places like Ramadi and Fallujah and the others that I listed. Uh, and at the end of the day, you have to do that by clearing and holding. You have to do it methodically, uh, deliberately, and you can't give it up. You just can't go from, uh, again, this building to the next one. You have to leave soldiers there to ensure that the enemy doesn't re-infiltrate. That's particularly acute in this case because of the 300 miles of tunnel underneath Gaza City that add an element that was never present, no, nothing remotely like that uh, in Iraq. And frankly, the enemy knows the terrain in Gaza City vastly better uh, than did Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State when they created the caliphate that had Mosul as their Iraq capital. Um, so that is enormously challenging. And you have huge numbers of civilians that uh, are being asked to get out of the way uh, by leaflets, by text messaging, by phone calls, and either cannot or will not. Uh, it's known that Hamas prevents at least some of them, if not substantial numbers, from doing that. And Hamas is willing to use civilians as, as human shields, along with the uh, more than 240 hostages that are reportedly still being held. Um, so that's a challenge. You have high rises, you have density of population, you have individuals who are willing to blow themselves up to take Israeli soldiers with them. That's a particularly pernicious threat because it means that anybody with bulky clothing or a vehicle that doesn't, doesn't uh, adhere to your instructions has to be considered. Uh, and then on top of all of that, you have Gaza that delivered, you have Hamas that deliberately puts its headquarters and its uh, weapons storage sites uh, and all the rest underneath refugee camps, underneath hospitals and inside mosques. So you could not construct a more challenging, uh, more difficult context. And then that's before 
you get to the other elements that we learned uh, about in Iraq the hard way, which was the inadequacy of our post-conflict planning. Of course, I was a two-star division commander during the fight to Baghdad. I remember asking in Kuwait, could you give us a little more detail on what happens after we get to Baghdad and topple the regime? And we we're basically told, you know, right. you just get us to Baghdad, we'll take it from there. And obviously that was more than inadequate. And then beyond that, we compounded our problems by some policy decisions to fire the Iraqi military without telling him how we're going to help him provide for their families. And even more important, debathification down without reconciliation, which was a crucial missing element. Uh, all the way down to a level that included the tens of thousands of bureaucrats that we needed to run the country that we didn't understand sufficiently well. Now, in the case of Gaza, Israel, the big ideas right now, and we stress in the book the importance of strategic leaders, the civilian and military leaders, getting the big ideas right. That's their first task. Craft the right strategy after understanding and with great rigor the context in which you're going to carry out a particular mission. So destroy Hamas, got it. Um, dismantle the political wing of Hamas, got it. But that means, of course, that there's no one left to administer uh, Gaza. And of course, you can't allow Hamas to continue to administer. But there are below that tens of thousands of individuals who literally keep the lights on, keep the water and the sewage and the markets and all the, the basic services. Uh, and at a certain point in time, I, I think sooner rather than later, uh, it's it would be advisable, I think, to go beyond Prime Minister Netanyahu has now in the last 24 hours acknowledged that Israel will likely have to oversee the security uh, of uh, Gaza. But I suspect it will be more than that. Um, and I think the sooner that that's recognized, the sooner the military will recognize the uh, the need to plan for that and to figure out how they're going to do that. And then how do you, will there be uh, employment of these tens of thousands of individuals who actually know how the various basic service provision is, is conducted? Uh, and then also a vision for the Palestinians uh, in Gaza that life will be much better after Hamas is finally gone and out of their lives since it's Hamas that has brought this violence onto them by the most horrific, barbaric, unspeakable actions imaginable, and even videoing them, keeping in mind now that we lost not quite 3,000 uh, innocent civilians in the 9-11 attacks per capita, uh, 1,400 in a population of about 9.3 million, that would equate to over 50,000 Americans having been killed, and the 240 hostages, that's over seven or more thousand uh, as well. So the trauma of this has been extraordinary. There's no way you can go back to mowing the grass as the strategy used to be for dealing with Hamas and then get a period of relative peace and then you'd have to do it again. They have to be destroyed. They are irreconcilable in the same way that Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became the Islamic State, or some of the Shia militias supported by Iran had to be destroyed and were during the surge and then kept down but for three and a half years. But after that is done, again, how are you going to administer? And I don't see the prospect of a competent, capable Palestinian uh, administration coming in, which is, of course, what you would want. But that, as we discussed before we began, Aaron, there's another element to this, that whoever it is that is overseeing Gaza, not just security, but the restoration of basic services, there's also going to have to be a counterinsurgency component because the remnants 
of Hamas and Islamic Jihad and some of these other extremist smaller elements, they're going to be trying to reconstitute and Iran will likely be seeking to enable them to do just that. If you don't have a very good intelligence led, again, counterterrorism component, counterinsurgent component, however you want to describe it. So I think the additional elements of the vision here of who will oversee not just security, but the restoration of basic services, reconstruction, reopening of schools, markets, clinics, et cetera. Uh, again, the sooner that's provided, I think the better, because it will also make the military, it just forces you to think about that much more than you will if you're just embarked on what might be a conventional military campaign, just out to destroy an enemy, and then other people are going to see to what happens after that. I want to have a question or two for you on the day after. Actually, as you know, it won't be the day after. It's going to be the weeks and months and potentially years after, uh, with the Israelis probably reoccupying uh, large parts of Gaza for uh, an indefinite period of time. I want to come back to that, but I want to ask you one discrete question, which has troubled me as the number of Palestinian deaths have reached exponential proportions. And I'm not sure whether the administration has any more concrete alternatives or advice to provide for the, to the Israelis, but I really would like your view. I asked you about it before. And that is how do you prosecute this campaign in a densely populated urban area, roughly 21,000 uh, humans to, per square mile, um, without causing um, the deaths of thousands of Palestinians. Adjusting the order and ordinance, better intelligence. Is, is there seriously a way to fundamentally reduce Palestinian civilian deaths? Well, there is inevitably going to be very substantial civilian loss of life and enormous damage and indeed destruction to civilian infrastructure in such a campaign against such an enemy who uses humans as civilians as human shields, who doesn't wear uh, a, a uniform, uh, who will have rigged rooms, buildings to blow up, booby traps has substantial uh, tactical expertise and creativity, 300 miles of tunnels underground, uh, and again, headquarters underneath refugee camps and hospitals and weapon storage and mosques. So again, this is why I laid out that the context truly could not be more challenging. Again, my co-author Andrew Roberts and I looked at these conflicts uh, since 1945, about which we write in, in conflict, uh, and we don't see anything uh, anywhere near as challenging. The, the closest, you know, maybe Mariupol in, in Ukraine to a degree or Hue City uh, during Vietnam uh, in the wake of Tet, some of these. But this enemy is even much more challenging than that. So, uh, again, it's hard to overstate how challenging this is. That said, clearly, it's incumbent on Israel uh, to adhere to the purity of arms, which is their concept, their interpretation of uh, the laws of land warfare and the concept of military necessity and proportionality, et cetera. But I'm really reluctant to second guess that without knowing what was the target, what was the military necessity, the imperative, um, what is the reality on the ground in terms of, uh, again, leaflets and text messages and phone calls to get the civilians out of the way and they're not 
not adhering to the, not obeying the direction, if you will, all of these different challenges. And on top of that, again, the, the, the threat of suicide bombers, uh, which is so pernicious uh, and so challenging for soldiers who are on the ground. Certainly there, there will be instances where, uh, again, there will be additional risk to soldiers in order to prevent uh, the loss of innocent life. Uh, but I just can't capture really how challenging uh, a battlefield situation this is, even again, compared to the very, very challenging ones that we faced uh, in battles like uh, Fallujah, Ramadi, and Mosul. I mean, this is an editorial comment, so forgive me. I just, uh, I think part of the reason that this administration, having worked and voted for Republicans and Democrats, um, cannot bring the kind of leverage to bear that they probably would like to bring to bear in order to create a different reality is that they do not have answers to the problem that I just uh, framed and, and you've, you've tried to answer, and more specifically to the day after. Because in a, in a way, we discussed this earlier, this is not Israel's 9-11. It may be 9-11 in the sense that Oh, it's far, far worse. It's much more traumatic, as traumatic right. as 9-11 was. Right. And look what it led to. Uh, this is just incomparably uh, worse than that. And keep in mind that this is an enemy who's on Israel's border, not over in eastern Afghanistan. Right. That's the point I wanted to make. We didn't have a proximity problem with al-Qaeda. So the day after and the broader frame that the Israelis would, will have to create at some point, maybe not with this Israeli government, but perhaps with another, because a, a trauma like these to both societies are going to bring about a period of reckoning, reckoning and introspection and political change. Uh, and I suspect that's why the day after proposition to me seems so artificial. Um, it's probably at a minimum the year after, which may in fact produce different administrations, conceivably, uh, in Israel and even here. So back again to the, the question of the day after. Um, all of the, the post-conflict planning, uh, a trusteeship uh, with a multinational force using the four or five Arab nations that have relations with Israel as sort of peacekeeping force, an immediate effort to reconstruct the Palestinian Authority. Abbas is in the 18th year of a four-year term. He canceled elections in 2021. He could barely administer the 40% of the West Bank he controls, let alone ride into Gaza on the back of an Israeli Merkava tank. We really are talking, General Petraeus, about an extended and prolonged Israeli, um, not that they want to, reoccupation of Gaza, which is going to wouldn't it tend to obstruct and impede a recon, even a reconstruction effort, given the fact that the Israelis are going to be looking at every shipment uh, to make sure that item X doesn't have a dual use to feed a, what could be a residual Hamas or Islamist presence uh, on the street? I mean, it's a, night, it's a strategic nightmare for the Israelis. It's going to be very, very challenging, but I fear that it is very likely inescapable because, again, this is not just about restoration of basic services and reconstruction. This is about ensuring that Hamas and Islamic Jihad cannot reconstitute themselves. And as 
again, we learned the hard way. Actually, the Iraqis learned the hard way because they were the ones that were supposed to be keeping their eye on the Islamic State. They took it off of the Islamic State, focused on Sunni demonstrators when the prime minister pursued highly sectarian policies literally within 24 hours that started after the departure of our final combat forces in late 2011. Uh, and again, a couple of years later, there you have the first ever uh, Islamist extremist caliphate in the world, uh, stretching from northeastern Syria to northern Iraq. So again, you are going to have to keep a very, very careful eye, very substantial pressure. And you're not going to be able to do that from uh, Israel any more than they could uh, anticipate this horrific but fiendishly creative uh, massacre uh, in the most barbaric manner uh, of is innocent Israeli civilians. So yes, this is going to be a very, very challenging endeavor for Israel. I'd love to see the countries that have long been supportive of Palestinians' uh, aspirations and, and so forth uh, take this over. But I, but again, are they really going to give the sufficient confidence? First of all, I don't see the hands really going up. I think there will be substantial support with resources and from the U.S. as well. Yes. I can't see any entity possibly that could take this over. Um, there's not going to be a United Nations peacekeeping element that could do this to the satisfaction and that is necessary, uh, not just desirable. So, and again, that's why I think the acknowledgement of what probably is inescapable uh, is done sooner rather than later. And again, acknowledging we know that there are two groups within the Israeli government that are working this very, very hard. We know that the U.S. is trying to find alternatives, but I have certainly haven't heard of one yet that sounds plausible, um, especially having been the commander of the greater Middle East as the U.S. Central Command commander and then and then the CIA director and and having some reasonable sense for the dynamics in the region. It's certainly hard to imagine any Arab state taking on the responsibility, even with gendarme or military forces, of running a counterinsurgency against Palestinians in Gaza. Exactly. Even while they are, are going to have to be sort of um, constrained by the Israeli presence. Um, should the Israelis create a buffer zone or seek to, and, and the Israelis will want to influence, have a, a large degree of influence of it on, on any sort of successor interim administration for, the, for their own security reasons. Well, you know, another dynamic that is out there is will Israeli clearance and holding, because you got to clear, hold, and then build, um, will the clearance and holding of everything that is north of the uh the the line across you know they basically have isolated northern gaza uh, by the force that has gone from east to west right through the center of gaza just north of one of the principal wadis as you know uh, is that going to be sufficient um will that again really meet the definition of having destroyed hamas or will there be a need to clear and hold southern gaza as well which i i fear uh may be the reality that they will confront after what is going to be an exceedingly tough difficult fight uh to clear and hold so again let me stress again that you don't just clear a building and go to the next one you have to leave a substantial number of soldiers behind so that the enemy cannot re-infiltrate and can't swarm those soldiers and and so forth and by the way i think 
it would probably be advisable to start rebuilding in those areas that they have cleared and are now holding just to show and also get some experience with what it is they're going to have to do on a much larger scale once they're able to clear and hold Gaza City. We don't have much time left, and I'm putting you in a very difficult position asking you to, to talk about uh, the L word, leadership, which figures very prominently throughout the waging of military campaigns. The ones that are most successful, I suspect, have the best leaders. But I wonder if you could um, maybe combine two things. Talk a little bit about leadership and the importance of what you and Andrew Roberts describe as getting the big ideas right uh, as it pertains to Ukraine. Sure. So first of all, um, what we identify as the most critical component determining success or failure uh, in a battlefield is the quality of the strategic leadership, the ability of the top civilian, usually president of the United States, prime minister of the UK or what have you, uh, and then the battlefield strategic leader, the, who, the commander of the operation that is ongoing. And they have to perform four tasks. First and foremost and most important is to get the big ideas right, to craft the right strategy, to understand the nature of the war and, and develop uh, the appropriate strategy, which we we recount a number of cases where we did not do that. Uh, Vietnam, you can argue that we didn't get the big ideas right until 1968. The French certainly didn't get the big ideas right. The, the idea that, you know, so you're frustrated with the guerrillas that won't come to battle, so let's build a big base in Dien Bien Phu and see if that will draw them to battle and how that work out. So again, there's a number of these kinds of examples, but if you look at Ukraine and you compare and contrast the strategic leadership of Zelensky on the one hand and Putin on the other, it is quite a stark difference. Uh, Putin completely underestimated the uh, response of the Ukrainians, the resilience, the determination, the capability, the skill, the will, and frankly, the response of the US and, and the, uh, the West collectively he overestimated the capabilities of his own forces very substantially uh, and basically got the big ideas wrong. The idea that they could, within a few days, take Kiev, topple the government, replace President Zelensky with a pro-Russian figure and go home to a victory parade obviously proved to be just more than a little bit flawed. And then on the other hand, you have Zelensky, who's performed all four of these tasks very impressively. Big idea number one, again, as I mentioned earlier, I don't want to ride, I want ammunition. I'm going to stay here in Kiev. My family's going to stay. We're going to defend Kiev. Uh, entire nation's going to mobilize. All men are going to stay in the country, et cetera. He communicates brilliantly, of course. Now it helps that he's a former actor, you know, a comedian who played the president so well he got elected president. And then he he's provided, he's overseen the implementation of the big ideas. That's the third task. Very, very impressively with his example, his energy, his his determination. Uh, the inspiration he's provided, attracting great people, letting those not measuring up move on uh, perhaps sooner than they thought, how he spends his time up in the battlefield with the troops, uh, contrast with Putin, who's, you know, at the one end of a very long table that you almost need a microphone down at the end uh, to communicate with your president. So, and then the fourth task, which is to determine how you need to refine the big ideas and do it again and again and again. Now, the challenge is, of course, that despite the Ukrainians winning the Battle of Kiev, Sumy, Chernihiv, Kharkiv, Kharkiv Oblast, uh, Kherson, uh, and so forth, that was west of the Dnipro, that right now even their own commander-in-chief, military commander-in-chief, acknowledges that you know, he's used, used the word stalemate, which his president did not appreciate, it appears. Uh, but nonetheless, that's the challenge, so that this is still not decided. 
uh, and Russia still occupies not quite 20% uh, of the country. Um, so this will continue. The big idea for us ought to be that we should do everything humanly possible to help Ukraine hasten that moment together with our European partners and other Western uh, allies and partners to hasten the moment when Putin realizes that this war is unsustainable and also to, to carry out the other element of this, which is the sanctions, export controls, uh, economic uh, sanctions and personal sanctions as well uh, to convince Russia that this is not viable on the home front either. But we're a long way from that still, even though we're tightening those sanctions and export controls and going after the sanctions evaders now as well, which is also very important. Uh, but still not not settled, still ongoing, still very, very challenging. Uh, and of course, unfortunately, the, the hope for gains uh, of the summer did not materialize to the extent, again, that, that Ukrainians and many of us had, had hoped we would see, in part because although we've provided enormous support, over $44 billion uh, in security assistance alone, we delayed some of the really critical decisions. Our tanks were not there for the summer offensive. Our F-16s or other countries' F-16s were not yet uh, released and actually overhead. And our doctrine says that to conduct a breach of the kind of substantial defenses the Russians created requires air superiority. They don't even have air parity. So again, the challenges here are considerable, but the strategic leadership by uh, President Zelensky has been truly admirable and that of President Putin uh, has been uh, the exact opposite. You know, I don't want to end on a gloomy note. You quote, you quote Plato um, in, in a chilling, chilling quote, only the dead will see the end of war. Um, you know, this book, Conflict, uh, I suspect that word conflict is going to remain part and parcel of the world in which we live. Perhaps better leaders, at, at, at some point, we'll find ways to anticipate and preempt the need for conflict. But until that day happens, I, I'm, I'm afraid we're living with a pretty grim reality just about everywhere. Well, this reminds you that money spent on deterrence, um, as substantial as it may seem at the time, uh, if successful, is a lot less than what has to be spent on war. General Petraeus, I want to thank you for your wisdom, your experience, and your authority. It's a great conversation. I'll hold the book up one more time. It's a great book. Um, take care until next time. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be with you again. Be well. Bye-bye. Be Thank you. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash Carnegie Connects.